And this will be part number 38 of our Rooting Through Romans Bible Sermon Series. And this morning, Lord willing, we're going to look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. And I've titled the message, The Spirit of Slumber. And you'll see why as we read our text uh, here in Romans chapter 11. So if you have your copy of God's Word, if you turn there, please. Romans 11, starting with verse 1. And here the Bible says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Watch ye not uh, what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed, down the, bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, then, at this present time also there is a remnant, according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it. And the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God has given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made of a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back always. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the reading of your word this morning. Lord, help us as we try to preach. Lord, may you receive any glory from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, here as we pick up where we left off last Sunday, we finished up chapter 10 last Sunday. And uh, Paul had just explained the method of salvation, and that was simply believing on the finished work of Christ on the cross, believing the gospel, calling on the name of the Lord, and thou shalt be saved. That's what he said. And we explained from God's word that you can't just call on a name in whom you've not heard. That's what the Bible says. And how can you hear without a preacher? And so the gospel must be preached, and that doesn't always mean audibly preaching in a vocal voice. Preaching is a published word or a herald word of God. And so you can preach by writing a Bible tract. You can preach. God's word can preach itself, by the way. A man can read God's word and understand the gospel and believe in it, call on the name of the Lord and be saved. That's the published word. And so anywhere the gospel is presented, men can hear and they can believe and they can call on the Lord Jesus to be saved. And that's what Paul explained to the Jews. And he said it was to all men, not just you Jews, not just those of Israel, not just those of the lineage of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, it's to all men and even mentioned the Greek. And so we're talking about the Greek, which we call the Gentile most of the time. And I believe everyone in this room is a Gentile. I don't know anybody that's a Jew. And so we are included in this plan. And we'll look more at that as we get through this at the engrafting that happens with a Gentile. And so we pick back up here after Paul has explained this method of salvation and, and who all it's to and all this. And as his manner is, when Paul writes things, he always includes these questions that people would have naturally when he would teach or preach the truth of God's word. And so they're going to ask, the Jews are going to ask the obvious questions here, you know. Verse 1, I say then, hath God cast away his people? And as we study through Romans, we see Paul uses this custom many times. 
using this question and answer system. And most of the time, he answered with a, God forbid. You know, it's kind of a rhetorical question. Well, is God cast away his people? Well, what? God forbid? Don't even think such a thing, is Paul's answer. So, if all these things are so, Paul, if this is true about the Lord accepting the Gentile, the Greek, the dog, and uh, all men are included, then, then is he, does that mean he's cast us away? He's just focused on the Gentile? And he's broken his promises to us. Are we over and done with? Is there no chance for restoration? Can we not have salvation? Has he rejected us permanently? That phrase there, it says cast away. Has he cast us away? It means thrown out, rejected, or driven away is what that means. We cast away stuff all the time. I cast away some scraps out in the yard the other day. They're gone. I got rid of them. I don't want to see them anymore. To me, they're... They're forever gone. Well, I know they are because an animal coming out. <laughs> but they're forever gone. And so that's the question the Jews, does that mean that's it for us? Are we cut off? And it's understandable that they would ask such a question. I mean, they all their lives, they've heard that God is their God and they're his people. And he promised Abraham the seed, you know, the number of the sands of the sea and the stars in the sky. Same promise to Jacob, which he named Israel, whom the Israelites are named after is uh, Jacob, Israel. And so they would ask the question because they would say, well, Paul, you know, it says back in Genesis 13 and 14, and the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever forever. And I'll make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land and length of it, and the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. And so this promise, he says, forever. I promise you these things. Genesis seventeen seven. I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, in their generations for an everlasting covenant. Everlasting means forever. It means not broken. To be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, and I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. There was nothing said there that it, and if you do this, then I will be your God. Now, he did give them commandments. They're not to sin against him or worship any other God or anything like that. However, his covenant with them was, he said, I chose you. I chose you, who are not a people, I chose you unto myself for salvation. And I am your God, you're my people, and this is my covenant, and it's everlasting forever. And so we can understand why the Jew would say, well, Paul, what about God's promises? Has he broke them? Has he kicked us out? Has he cast us away? And so he's going to answer the question, but first, you must understand there's more than only the Jews that think such a thing. The Jews in Paul's day thought they were cast away forever and replaced by the church. People today believe the same thing. The Jews of today and even religions, denominations, there's many denominations that believe in what's referred to as replacement theology. Now what that simply means is that God, because the Jews rejected Jesus when he came here, that he gave them up forgot about them, and made the church, the New Testament church, in place of Israel. 
So it's replacement theology. The, the technical term for it is a supersessionism. And so it simply means that God's plan for the Jew is, is over and done with. The church is now the spiritual Israel. And that all the promises to Israel are actually for the church. Well, of course, we know that's not the truth. The Bible does not teach that in any manner whatsoever. And a lot of them get it from what Paul is writing to the Jew about them being cast away and about the, the branches that are broken off and, the, and then the Gentiles are engrafted in onto that branch, the wild olive tree and all this. And so they, they use these verses to back up their claims that, that God no longer works through Israel and he's done with them, but he's only working through the New Testament church. And that thinking's been around since the first century. After Paul wrote this, that thinking began. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church really are the ones that, that did most of it, the instigation of it. And they're the ones that pushed it, the, the replacement theology. Um, they, this caused millions of Jews to be persecuted by Rome. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church persecuted those uh, Jews all through the, the beginning of the first century and, and, and farther for hundreds of years. And uh, people said, even people such as Martin Luther, whom we look up to and think, you know, well, he's so great and he did all this. Yeah, but Martin Luther preached it too. He preached replacement theology. And because of this, there's a man named Adolf Hitler. Maybe you heard of him. Adolf Hitler read Martin Luther's uh, sermons and read them to the German people and said, this is why all Jews must be wiped out. And so he used Martin Luther's teaching to back up his claim that uh, for the Holocaust, for what, what happened in the Holocaust. And so re replacement theology leads to uh, anti-Semitism, uh, which is a deliberate discrimination, persecution, and prejudice against Jews. And it's going on today, and it always has. Ever since the Jews have been a people, they've been persecuted. And so the truth is, nowhere in the Bible do we read where the New Testament church replaced Israel or the Jew. The Bible never refers to a Gentile believer as an Israelite. And so every time the Bible uses the term Israel, it's referring to a physical descendant of Jacob when it uses the term Israel. And he's not done with them. We don't have time to get into it this morning, but down there in verses 11 through 24 of this chapter, Paul gives this analogy of the Gentiles being grafted in. Now, all through the Bible, you're going to find that Israel is referred to as a symbol of an olive tree. An olive tree was uh, magnificent. It grew the great branches. It's where they, they got uh, a lot of their, uh, their nourishment from, that olive and their olive oil and all this. And it was a magnificent tree. They were known all over the world for how wonderful they were. And so every time you thought of the olive tree, you thought of the <laughs> Jewish race or the Israelites. Uh, and so... Paul explains down in those verses, uh, which we'll get to next time, about the olive tree, the, the Israel, and how the natural branches had been broken off. Uh, not all of them, but some of the natural branches had been broken off, and then this wild olive tree, meaning the Gentiles, was engrafted onto the tree, and it was getting nourishment from the roots of the tree. And so it became essentially one. So you've got the Gentiles, and you've got the Israelites, all branched out of this great olive tree, getting its, its roots from the same place, its nourishment from the same place. And so what he's saying, salvation, is through all men. God didn't cast away all of Israel, all the Jews. He will always have a remnant. 
And so not all the branches have been broken off. God didn't go through and say, we're going to strip this thing clean, nothing but a big trunk, and then I'm going to graft on all the Gentiles. No, some of those branches, natural branches, broke off, and then the wild olive branch, the Gentiles, were grafted on to that tree. And so that's all of an, an analogy there. And so now, look down in uh, back of our text, verse 1, the second part of it. Here's Paul's answer to the Jew. God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Stop there. <clears throat> so again, as, as I said, Paul uses that normal term he does, God forbid. Don't think such a thing. It's not true. It's not possible. So he explains now that I am proof that God's not casting away his people because I too am one of you. I'm an Israelite. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. He gives his pedigree. And he says, God's not cast me away. I've not been cast away. In fact, Paul has become a Christian. And so had many other Jews. Think about it this way. The church actually originated from Jews. The apostles, the disciples, they were Jewish. They were from Israel. And so, uh, as, as I've always said, and as I've always taught, um, that the church started with Jesus and his disciples. And it was empowered at Pentecost. But him and his disciples was the beginning of the church, and they were Jews, and that's where the church began. And so, God's not casting away all of Israel. They can be saved. Um, the Jews' disobedience has not nullified God's promises or his love for them. It's a lot of times we think in our carnal fleshly mind the way we do with individuals. If somebody does something against me, somebody defies me, somebody says something about me, then that's it. I wrote them off. I hate them. I don't love them anymore. Our love here is fickle. You, somebody one day will say, I love you so much, and you do something against them, they'll say, I hate you so much. And so our love is much different from God's love. God's love is, is not, you're not able to destroy it. You're not able to do something against him that makes him love you less. It's like with our own children. No matter how bad they can be, whatever they do, we don't suddenly say, well, because you did this, I hate you. I don't want anything to do with you. No, we don't. We love you. We wish you hadn't done that, <laughs> you know, but we, we love you. And so you cannot diminish God's love for you based on your acts, your works. And that's where a lot of people get messed up. They say, well, I've done so many bad things. God hates me and there's no chance for me and this and that and all that. That's not true. And so look at the next part of verse 2 there. He says, what you not, what the scripture saith of Elias how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed thy prophets and digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed down the knee to the image of Baal. Now, we all remember that story. And let me, let me explain this real quick. I've done this a few times, but just so you understand, the 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 spelling of the word Elijah, the name Elijah there, is Elias in your New Testament. That's the Greek rendering of that word. Uh, Elijah, the name means my God is Yahweh, or my God is Jehovah, as really what we prefer to say as Gentiles. Uh, my God is Jehovah. The L in Elijah, of course, stands for God. L means God. The I in Elijah means my, 
And then the last part, J-A-H, Yah, Jah, Yah, is the shortened form of Yahweh. The Tetragrammaton, you know, they don't spell out the name uh, Yahweh or say the name of God out loud. And so the Tetragrammaton takes care of that with a Y-H-W-H. And so Elijah is turned into Elias in Greek form. And so the New Testament spelling of that name Elijah will have an S on the end. And you'll find the same with Jeremiah. He's referred to as Jeremiah's. He's even referred to as Jeremy in one section of, of the Bible, in the New Testament. And Isaiah, Isaiah, beginning with an E and ending with an S. And so you'll find that in your uh, your King James Bible, in the uh, the way that they translated it to, to Greek language, uh, to English from Greek. <laughs> and so Paul reminds them of this story of Elijah. And we all know what it was. Ahab was the king of Israel. Ahab was a wicked king, and he married an even more wicked wife, Jezebel. And uh, you remember Elijah stood up to him. And uh, uh, Elijah, after all that happened to him, and old Jezebel was chasing him down, hunting him like a dog. And there was Elijah out there feeling sorry for himself, thinking he's the only one. I'm the only one who loves you, God. Ain't nobody else. I'm the only one left on earth. And God said, hey, wake up, man. I've got 7,000 of a remnant that still love me, still obey me, still are obedient. And Elijah had no idea. He didn't know all that. He thought he was the only one left. Well, the Jews were saying, well, it means we're all cast away, isn't it? And Paul says, no. What, you remember what happened about Elijah? He thought the same thing. He was the only one left. But they, God had a remnant. And so that's the point he's making in the next verses, verses 5 and 6. Even so, then, at this present time also, there is a remnant, according to the election of grace. Not law, not works, but grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. And it sounds like a Dr. Seuss rule. But, uh, what he's simply telling them is, you guys have based your whole life on your works. And thinking that was going to earn you salvation and uh, that God would accept you because of that. He says, that's not true. There is a remnant out there that's been saved by grace. I am an example. Paul's saying, I'm an example of that. And Elijah, not knowing about that remnant, that's an example of that. And so God's grace, and by the way, salvation throughout the Bible has always been taught that it's by grace through faith or belief. Same thing. Belief and faith is essentially the same thing. So it's simply by God's grace. Man has never, ever, ever worked and earned salvation. Never. The law never saved anybody, never could, never will. And so God will always and has always had a remnant. Jews that believe in Christ as Savior is proof of that. There's still Jews that believe today. Not all Jews are blinded. We've not got to that part yet, but hang on. But it's through God's grace that he saves those who save. It's not by works. You could not work hard enough to save yourself. You couldn't buy your way for salvation. No man is that, that rich. Elon Musk can't do it. Bill Gates can't do it. It don't matter, it don't matter how much money they have and, and how far they go up to space. They can't earn or, or pay or work for their salvation. It's all by God's grace, his gift, his grace. It's free. Uh, and so it's hard for man to understand that we have nothing to do with our salvation. <gasps> what? What are you saying? 
You mean, you mean it wasn't because I chose God? The reason you chose God is because God caused you to choose him. Think of it this way. If you go find a dead animal in the road, that animal is not going to revive on its own. It's not going to be able to rise up and live because it's dead. People that are lost are dead. Dead things don't come to life on their own. The only way it's possible is if there is some way to make them alive. God is the way that makes them alive. And so if you've believed in the Lord Jesus, something drew you to God, that was his spirit drawing you to him. He's the one that instigated your salvation. You didn't suddenly wake up and say, I think I want to be saved today. I'll choose God. No, you didn't. If you decided to choose God, it's because God said, wake up, dead thing. I'm here for you. He's the one that did it. And so we can't work during salvation. We can't cause his love to want to save us. I mean, he loves us, and that's why he sent Jesus here to save us. But we can't say, well, you know, God, I'm going to bring you, you know, all these gifts I'm going to you know, do all these works and everything, and you're going to love me so much more than my neighbor, and I know that that's going to count toward my salvation. And there's people that think that. They think that they can do God enough favors where he'll love them more. Listen, you can't, you can't think of it that way. Uh, if you're not a parent, you may not understand this, but it doesn't matter what your child does, how good they are or how bad they are, your love for them does not change. And so one day they may come and they may bring you something that you really enjoy, may have drew you a little card, you know, and gave it to you. Oh, that's so wonderful. I love it. The next day they may have done something stupid and come to you, you know, and, and you had to punish them. Your love for them did not change, whether it was the nice card they did or the stupid thing they did. Your love remained the same. God's love remains the same. So you can't cause him to love you more to earn salvation. And uh, so some people say, well, Brother Byron, I chose God. And like I said, if you chose him, it's because he instigated it. He drew you. No man comes unto the Father but by me. No man can come can, unless the Father draw him. That's what the Bible says. No man can come to me unless the, the Father draw him. And so salvation is... All God and not us. So look at verse 7. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election has obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God has given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. Now we get to this very important part of the scripture, which we titled the message from. And it describes God's, God's willful blinding of the Jewish people. God purposely blinded their eyes, caused them not to seek him for salvation, caused them not to understand, caused them not to have any understanding of it. He did that purposely. Why? Because they rejected him. This is a type of punishment. There is punishment for disobedience. Now, people don't like to hear that. What? Yeah, yes. You will be punished for your disobedience. And uh, so God gives them this spirit of slumber. Now, 
God allows some Jews to see the truth. Not every one of the Jewish race is blinded. Some come to the knowledge of Christ. Paul, example. Uh, there's Jewish people today that have become Christians. They're saved because God's allowed them to be. So not all, like we said, not all of the olive branches have been broken off. God still has a remnant. There's some that he still elects through grace. And so he says he's given them a spirit of slumber. That word slumber is interesting. Slumber is a form of sleep, but there's a difference between sleep and slumber. Sleep, you still have kind of a, a thinking conscience going on. Your sleep is when you dream. Your, your brain works, your mind works. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of like you, let me explain it this way. Since I work on computers, here's the way I understand it. So in most computers, Windows computers, you have an option when you go to power, you click on power, you've got sleep and you've got shutdown. Sometimes you have hibernate. But usually sleep and shutdown are your choices on your computer. If you press sleep, the computer goes into this kind of a sleep state where things are still running in the background. Uh, it still has its memory. It can still do things. You can touch the keyboard or the mouse and it'll wake right back up because there was something there still running waiting for a command from something to start. And so it's still kind of going in life. But if you press shut down, that thing's down. It's not, you can't just tap the keyboard and it come back on or move the mouse or touch the screen or anything. If it's shut down, it is shut down. It's not thinking. It's not doing anything in the background. It's just dead. That's the difference between sleep and slumber. Think of it that way. So those that are asleep, they're, they're still conscious. They're waiting around. But those that God has put in a spirit of slumber, it's like they're completely dead. There's no consciousness there. It's, they've been shut down by God's power button. <laughs> and so uh, the Lord chose to shut down on the Jews. Christ came to this earth and offered salvation to the Jews. We know that. He came here. He could have at that point in time set up his earthly kingdom. All they simply had to do was accept him, believe on him. He would have been their earthly king, Messiah, set up his kingdom, ruled and reigned on this earth. But what's the Bible say? He came unto his own, and his own received him not. So they rejected Jesus when he came that first time. And because of the Jews as a nation rejected Christ, he gave them what they wanted. He withheld his salvation from them. That's what they wanted. We, we reject you. We don't want anything to do with you. We don't believe in you. You're not who we were waiting for. We've been waiting on the side. You're not it. You came in meek and lowly on, on a colt, on a foal, on a, on a donkey. We're looking for a ruling king, a reigning, reigning king on a white stallion to rush in, destroy Rome, set up a kingdom. You're not it. We don't want you. And that's why Jesus, when he came down there on, on that day, uh, we call it Palm Sunday, and he comes up to, the, to Jerusalem. He looks out over the holy city, and the Bible says he weeps because they missed the time of their visitation. He came to visit them and to present himself as their king, and they said, we don't want you. We'll kill you. How about that? We just murder you. And so they rejected him. He said, okay, if you want to reject me, I'll reject you. I will shut you down. I'm going to put you in a state of slumber where you're not going to be able to understand any of it. And so you'll find over and over in the Bible, 
instances where God hardens people's hearts. You remember Pharaoh back in Exodus in the days of Moses when uh, Moses came and said, let my people go. And uh, Pharaoh made all these promises and then backed down and the Bible kept saying God hardened his heart. Ten times God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Ten other times Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But God hardens hearts if, if he so desires. It's his prerogative. He is God. You don't question what God does. He can do what he wants to do. And so there is a price to pay for rejecting God. Uh, you can reject him enough to where he'll finally just give you over to your own desires. And uh, God help you after that. Over in Romans 1.28, we see where God gives people over to a reprobate mind. That's these disgusting, filthy, wretched uh, animal of a people that's out there. They're wicked. They're homosexual and uh, just always thinking of, of evil in their hearts. And there, there's a time when God says, you know what, I'll just give you over to that. That's what you want. That's what you get. And listen, uh, you don't want to be in that place of reprobate from God. All right, look at verse 9. Back in Romans 11. And David saith, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. Now what Paul's doing here, he's quoting from their Old Testament. He takes their greatest king, David, the psalm that he wrote, and says, do you remember what David said about you? And he and he. Quotes it, Psalm 69, 22 and 23. Let their table become a snare before them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not and make their loins continually to shake. We know this happened to God's people. Right before they were led off into captivity, both kingdoms, the north and the south, both of them, before they were led off into captivity, they had all these things, blessings of God. And God warned them over and over and over you, you worship me and me only. Don't you bow down to those foreign gods. And they that's what they did. They bowed down to those foreign gods. And God said, you know what? All these blessings you have, they become a trap for you now. And a stumbling block. Uh, your table, which was bountiful when you had everything, is now become a snare for you. You sit back and think you've got it made. Well, you better think again. And so their eyes became darkened. They can't see. And their loins continually to shake. Those people were led off into captivity, never the same since. And so Paul is explaining to them from their own prophecy uh, that this was coming about. And so he's just trying to open their eyes that this is the truth I'm teaching you. It's not something new. It's not some new age teaching that I've made up and that is not true. This is what God has said already. You need to understand that. And so to the Jews of Paul's day, the Jews of our own day, Jesus was and is a stumbling block to those people. Uh, they were not looking, like I said, for a Messiah coming in meek and lowly on, on an on a ass's colt to present himself as a lamb. But their prophets said that's how he was coming in. That's exactly what they said. Instead, they were looking for this conquering king riding on a stallion. Well, that conquering king is going to come riding on a stallion. You may have heard of those four horsemen. You may have heard the one on the white horse. Listen, in Revelation 19 11, the Bible says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. 
His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. That's us, by the way. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So he is coming that way, the way they expected him to come in the first time. But he came in as he said he would, as the final sacrifice, as a sacrificial lamb to the slaughter. And they rejected him. They did not want it. And he said, okay, don't want it. You don't have to have it. Your eyes are darkened. You're blinded. I'm shutting you down. And that's where the Jews are still at today. Now we know uh, from reading our Bible, you know, the church is going to be raptured out of here before the tribulation period. And people that tell you different than that, I don't know where they get it. Because the Bible is very clear. We're here and then all of a sudden we're gone. And then the tribulation period begins. And that tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble, by the way, is for the Jews, not for the Gentiles, not for the church. It's for the Jews. That's going to be the time when many are going to get, get their eyes open. They're going to wake up. They're going to understand and they're going to hear the cries of the one that they, they slaughtered, the one that they uh, sent to the cross. But I tell you, friends, I don't, I don't know about you, but uh, today is the day, the Bible says, of salvation. Uh, to go any further, to think that you're going to be able to make it through this life and see heaven one day without trusting the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you're sadly mistaken. It's not going to happen. The Jews are not going to be able to do enough works to save them. You're not going to have enough money to pay your way into heaven. The only way through is that shed blood of Jesus Christ. And he died on that cross because he loves you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we come to you this morning thanking you so much for the message. Lord, I pray that it's not fell on deaf ears, and I know it's not. You said your word would go out and, and do that which you please. And God, we know it's going to do a mighty work in the hearts and minds of men and women today. Lord, I'm praying for that one today that may be lost, that hears this message. Lord, would you convict their heart? Lord, get them out of that slumber. Lord, wake them up. Make that dead thing revive. And God, show them the need to believe in Jesus before it's too late. Thank you for our church. Thank you for those who are here. Thank you for those listening online. Thank you for all your blessings. For it's these things we ask in the name of Jesus. And amen.